Good morning. Um, today, we will be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I, may, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we thank God for his word, even when it's hard and discomforting and challenging because we just trust that we need this. We need a book like Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> I want to share a poem with you that I came across this past week that uh, you'll see why it, just, it, it fits with Ecclesiastes. This is a poem by an author named Clint Smith. It's called All at Once. The redwoods are on fire in California. A flood submerges a neighborhood that sat quiet on the coast for three centuries. A child takes their first steps and tumbles into a father's arms. Two people in New Orleans fall in love under an oak tree whose branches bend like sorrow. A forest of seeds is planted in new soil. A glacier melts into the ocean and the sea climbs closer to the land. A man comes home from war and holds his son for the first time. A man is killed by a drone that thinks his jug of water is a bomb. Your best friend re relapses and isn't picking up the phone. Your son's teacher calls you to say he stood up for another boy in class. A country below the equator ends a 20-year civil war. A soldier across the Atlantic fires the shot that begins another. The scientists find a vaccine that will save millions of people's lives. Your mother's cancer has returned, and doctors say there is nothing else they can do. There is a funeral procession in the morning and a wedding in the afternoon. 
the river that gives us water to drink is the same one that might wash us away. And this is the world we've got. Uh, it is full of breathtaking beauty and heartbreaking brokenness. It is truly a horrible, holy thing. And the question is, how do we live meaningful lives in the world as it actually is? That's the question Ecclesiastes wants to help us with. <clears throat> and so if you were here last week, remember that uh, we've been introduced to this main character of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, and he has been on a journey, nothing less than a universal quest for the meaning of life. And now he's filling us in on his discovering. Uh, we get to peer over his shoulder as he tries to figure out how to find meaning and purpose in a world that is so confounding and enigmatic. And so if you were here two weeks ago, when we, when we began the series, <clears throat> you'll remember we looked at verse 3 of chapter 1, where Kohela asked a question that he'll come back to again and again, and the question is this, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, um, like, what does all the stuff we do as human beings amount to? Like, what's the point of any of it? Uh, what's the payoff? Is there anything that can rise above the hebel? Remember, that's the Hebrew word that uh, gets translated vanity of vanities. It, it literally means like vapor, smoke. Um, anything that can rise above the hebel. And so last week, if you were here, remember Kohelet tried out wisdom. Like, like maybe if we just gained enough knowledge or if we just discovered the right principles, we could make sense of the world and we could bring our chaotic lives under some measure of control. But no, that didn't work. And so now in our passage this morning, Kohelet takes up a new experiment. Maybe the good life is less about rules and formulas and more about just delight and enjoyment. It's less about learning the right principles and more about maximizing pleasure. And so let's set off with Kohelet on his pursuit of pleasure. In verse 2, he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He's talking to himself. Come now, I'm going to test, test you with pleasure, self, to find out what is good. See, he's come to the conclusion that life is short and it's absurd, and so he's going to test out whether pleasure can bring goodness to an otherwise absurd life, a meaningless life. And, and this is a full immersion test that he embarks on. Look at everything he tries. I mean, in verse 3, he, he tries out alcohol. And I imagine that he tries out like all the various kinds of alcohol. In verse 4, he tries property and real estate development. In verse 5 and 6, he tries the cultivation of beautiful land. See, all of this to try to bring enjoyment and pleasure into his life. In verses 6 and 7, he pursues power and possessions. In verse 8, he amasses even more wealth and he experiments with the pleasures of music and sex. And in verse 10, he tells us, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And so he's just going all in. He's holding nothing back. Now, notice that through all of this, uh, he is pursuing pleasure thoughtfully. I mean, in verse 3, he says that in all of this, his heart is guiding him by wisdom. In verse 9, he assures us that his wisdom remained with him. And so this really is uh, an experiment. He, he's not going off the rails as some kind of crazed hedonist. He's genuinely trying to discover 
um, if the pleasures of life can bring sense, it can bring a sense of like real meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction. And so that was his pursuit of pleasure, and it was thorough, and it was immersive, and it was all hebel. It was all hebel. Verse 11, behold, all of that, all, all the music, the sex, the uh, cultivation of beautiful land, all the alcohol, all the houses and wealth and possessions, like it's all hebel. It was all vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under, under the sun. And so... Here at the very end of his quest with pleasure, uh, this segment of his quest, um, the assertion that absolutely everything is Hebel, it still stands for Kohelet, and the question about the point and the purpose of human life, it, it just remains unanswered. Now, why would that be? Why would that be? What's the problem with the pursuit of pleasure? I want to look at a couple of problems suggested by our passage. Um, the first problem is this. Pleasure just doesn't deliver on what it promises. It, it never delivers on our expectations of it. Okay, that's the first problem. Um, that it's obvious in what Kohelet tells us. Like, if we're looking for real meaning and real fulfillment, purpose, satisfaction, pleasure itself, it, it never really delivers. It's not long before we're faced with the shallowness and the meaninglessness of the pursuit. I mean, think about, think about it. Uh, we're always loading all kinds of other hopes onto the pursuit of pleasure. And, and so we're never merely after a good time. We're always after like a meaningful existence. And we think that maybe the good time is gonna bring about the meaningful existence. Like, think of some of the ways you've probably experienced this. Like you pursue the pleasure of humor and laughter a really good joke or a, or a comedy special on Netflix. Um, but it's never merely the joke you want. It's, it's like you want the joy of connecting with another person who is also experiencing the laughter. It's always better to watch those specials with someone else. Um, or when you drink wine, like you're not merely after a buzz, but you're after uh, some sense of relief or you're after like lower inhibitions so that you can actually um, share yourself more comfortably with others. And what about the accumulation of, of more and more things? Like, it's never just about having more stuff, is it? Like, on some level, we believe that if we finally have enough stuff, we'll feel satisfied. Our lives will feel complete. Like, like we believe on some level that the more stuff we have, the, the happier our lives will be. I mean, think about how advertisers just um, totally manipulate us with... with this instinct we have, like, the next time you watch a car commercial, I mean, you could pick any kind of commercial, but just a car commercial, like, realize what's being um, offered to you. It's not just, like, some piece of steel on wheels. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a lifestyle that is, that is full of joy and laughter or, or accomplishment, getting hard work done with your truck, or, you know, it's something that, like, makes your life way better than a car could possibly make your life when you stop and think about it. Um, <laughs> What about our fascination with music? See, we're never only after a pleasant sound, like we're after transcendence. Uh, Tom York of Radiohead, he said this, a good piece of music is like knocking a hole in the wall so that you can see out on another place you didn't know existed. Every good piece of music or piece of art or writing keeps you from feeling trapped. And that's what we're, that's what we're after. 
Like we, we don't want to feel trapped. We want to transcend our current experience with the music. Um, so the pursuit of pleasure is always about more than just pleasure. We pursue pleasure because it promises the good life, but does it ever deliver on what it promises? No, oh, I mean, kids, think about it. Like, uh, you're probably already bored with the presents you got last Christmas, and you're looking forward to the presents you'll get this year. And, and, and parents, like, maybe you got the new iPhone on the day of its release, but, but like, how long was it before you were just counting down the, na the days until you could upgrade to the next model without being charged, like, some insane <laughs> amount? And, uh, and, and, you know, like, the thrill of the new relationship, it always wears off eventually. And most of the time we handle the disappointments by shifting our hopes onto the next new thing, like maybe this will be the thing that finally delivers. But you see, family, um, the gift that Kohelet gives us is that we get to hear from a person who has already acquired everything. He's already acquired everything. Like, he has gone all in on pleasure, he has lived the American dream better than any American ever has or ever will. And his conclusion? It's Hebel. It's all vapor. Like he has made it to the top of Pleasure Mountain and there's nothing there. And so, and so that's one big problem with the pursuit of pleasure. It just doesn't deliver on its promise. It does not deliver on what it promises. Here's another problem. The pursuit of pleasure puts us out of tune with reality. It puts us out of alignment with the world as it actually is. <clears throat> Our instinct is to think that the good life should always feel good. But what if our world is really beautiful and befuddling? Like, what if it's really holy and horrible? You see, pursuing pleasure in a world like ours, it can blind us to the world as it actually is. Kohelet doesn't comment on this, but we can see it in the course his pursuit of pleasure takes. I mean, did you notice that it was, for one thing, pretty much entirely self-oriented, totally self-focused? Um, it, it was all about what could increase his personal pleasure, and that led him to some pretty messed up places. Um, he bought other people as slaves, and he kept their children as slaves. He acquired great herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before him, but with no concern for whether others in his community had enough. He had a harem of concubines, but uh, are they living the good life? I mean, as far as we know, Kohelet just doesn't ask the question. He doesn't even seem to care. And see, this, this is what happens when pleasure becomes our main goal. When we equate the good life with our personal uh, feeling good, we can so easily cut ourselves off from the world's befuddling brokenness. We're still contributing to the brokenness, but we just don't see it. We become numb to issues of injustice and oppression. And so we buy the new piece of technology or the new piece of clothing without really caring about, like, uh, who made it, or what the conditions were um, in which it was made, how it was made. Or, or we visit the dark corner of the internet with no thought to the real human beings who are being trafficked and exploited. Or we move to the bigger house just because we can, 
while people in our city uh, sleep in the streets. You see, the pursuit of pleasure, it warps our vision. It puts us out of alignment with the world as it actually is. And so often a result is that we don't know what to do with our sorrow. Uh, We don't know how to lament. Like when feeling good is the goal, we can only see sadness and despair as problems and obstacles to be overcome instead of seeing them as like very needed and normal responses to the world as it actually is. Like maybe life east of Eden isn't supposed to feel good all the time. So what's the solution? Do we just become religious prudes who reject all fun? No. I hope not. Um, Like we were made by a joyful God and we were made for happiness. Think about the beginning of the Bible story. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are full of God delighting, just delighting in his creation. Over and over again, God declares it good and very good. And that's, remember, that's more than just a quality inspection. That is God um, like rejoicing in the goodness of what he has made. And when we get into the details of creation, we see that God wants to share the pleasure of creation with humanity. He wants humanity to experience the world as this good and delightful gift. <clears throat> so he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. That's pleasurable. Like they're going on pleasure walks together. Uh, He gives them meaningful work and responsibility, like real authority and power. And he gives them food to enjoy. And he gives them trees. Who was it that was telling? Greg Greg was telling me, I still, I need to get this book. Uh, Just a, a book just singing about how amazing trees are. Like trees are amazing. Like they aren't just functional. Right? They are, they're beautiful. They're delightful. And, and God gives us trees. And, uh, and he gives us, he, he gives men women, and he gives women men, and, and uh, they, he gives the man to the woman, the woman to the man, and they, they recite poetry to each other. And, and they're, um, they're naked, and they're not ashamed. And I think, well, that's pleasurable, uh, if you can pull it off. <laughs> Uh, everything, in fact, that Kohela is after in his experiments with pleasure was right there in the garden. Food, sex, wealth, beauty, power. Uh, but it's all rightly ordered. It's all in its proper context. In his pursuit of pleasure, it's like Kohela is trying to recreate it. He's trying to recreate Eden And maybe, family, that's what we're always trying to do in one way or another with our pursuits of pleasure. We're looking for the relationship or the experience or the possession that will finally satisfy. Something that will overcome the hebel and make this mess of a world we've got a place of beauty and abundance and delight again. Why doesn't it ever work? Why doesn't it ever work? Viktor Frankl, who wrote that uh, extraordinary little book, Man's Search for Meaning, he wrote this. He says, pleasure is and must remain a side effect or byproduct 
and is destroyed and spoiled to the degree to which it is made a goal in itself. Isn't that interesting? Um, it, it's like if you go after pleasure directly, it really is Hebel. Like, it, it slips through your fingers like vapor. Grabbing hold of it can't be the goal. You can't grab hold of it. it it's so elusive. Um, Kohela is trying to recreate Eden, but what makes Eden Eden? It's not just the trees. It's the one who made the trees. It's the presence of God. Like, without God in the garden, all the good gifts of creation too easily become, as C.S. Lewis puts it, um, dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. It's like all the things we, we run after, thinking that they will fulfill us, they just become idols as soon as they're separated from, from God. Um, without God in the garden, the garden really is Hebel. I mean, it can't possibly satisfy. For our call to worship this morning, we read Psalm 16. And at the end of that psalm, the psalmist says to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, that's, that's what God's people have always known on one level, is that um, true joy, true delight, true pleasure is always only to be found in the very presence of God. Uh, see, that's it. I mean, St. Saint, Saint Augustine makes a similar point when he said famously, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Kohela even gets at this in his own way, although it's, I think we'll see, it's a little, uh, well, it might not be as clear as how it's often taken to be. But he says uh, in, in the next chapter that God has put eternity in our souls. He's put eternity in our souls. And see, if that's true, if in your soul is like this Grand Canyon sized chasm, that needs to be filled, then chances are like your iPhone isn't going to scratch that itch. And neither will another bottle of wine or a new relationship or a really well-manicured lawn. I mean, trying to satisfy your longing for pleasure and joy and delight apart from God is like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with, with water using a squirt gun. See, it just, can you imagine? You walk up and there's a guy standing over the Grand Canyon just squirting his little squirt gun into the green can. Hey, what you doing? I'm just trying to fill this thing up, the water. <laughs> See, it's not going to work. C.S. Lewis says something like, God um, can't give us happiness apart from himself because there's no such thing. He can't give us happiness apart from himself because it just, it's not a thing. There's no such thing as happiness apart from God, um, which is why it comes as such good news, such beautiful news, when in Isaiah chapter 55, God himself cries out to his people, and he says, how long will you buy bread that doesn't satisfy? How long will you drink wine that just makes you thirsty for more? How long are you going to like just keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping that this time you'll be satisfied, that this time you'll be fulfilled, that this time you'll, you'll have the delight and experience of pleasure that you long for. And then God says, just come to me. 
He says, come sit at my table. You see, family, um, God promises to satisfy us with himself. And then hundreds of years after Isaiah wrote those words, Jesus stood up in the middle of a Jewish festival and he cries out, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See, we spend so much time, family, trying to get back to Eden. We're always looking we're always looking for that experience of Eden, but what if the one who who makes Eden Eden has already come looking for us? And so we remember Jesus. Remember Jesus with me. Uh, think about his life. He wasn't standoffish about pleasure, was he? Uh, like he enjoyed a good time. He loved to celebrate. You remember. For his first miracle in John's gospel, he creates like 150 gallons of wine, uh, uh, 150 gallons of, of like what apparently was the best wine imaginable, all to keep a party from fizzling out in shame. And, and he, he just loved to, to party and celebrate with people. He was always hosting parties himself or he was inviting himself to other people's parties, which I'm sure was a little awkward, but he would, he would invite himself to other people's parties and then... If you read carefully, it's not long before he has actually become the host of those parties too. In Luke's gospel, Jesus shares meals with people so often that one commentator points out that uh, you you can map the entire gospel of Luke in terms of Jesus going to a meal, being at a meal, or coming from a meal. That's it. He's going, he's at it, or he's coming from it. He did, he did, he did this so much that the religious leaders of his day accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. So Jesus was not an ascetic. He, he doesn't avoid pleasure. Like, he really enjoys life. But he never does it in a way that puts him out of touch with reality. Like, he always remains open to the world's brokenness and to the world's hurt. He sees people um, exactly as they are, exactly where they are, and he... Um, always takes time to hear them and to help them. And and so we see Jesus over and over again, like stopping or taking a detour just to be with that person or to give this person his undivided attention. We see him weeping with those who weep. We, We see him keeping his eyes wide open to the people who are so often overlooked and left out. In fact, you remember in Luke, Uh, Jesus takes up that prophecy from Isaiah and and he uses it to frame his entire mission. He says, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to those, um, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So it's like, it's like what? brings Jesus joy is a little different than what Kohelet pursues. I mean, Kohelet's pursuit of joy led him um, to focus inward, and it led him into oppression, and, and not into liberating, but to actually enslaving others. And it's like what, Jesus, what brings Jesus joy is going low for the sake of the lost and the least and the last. 
and family, he does go low. He sees this beautiful, befuddling world, this holy, horrible thing, and he does not run from the Hebel. He doesn't shrug his shoulders in indifference or throw his hands up in despair. Instead, um, he just plunges in. And he goes all the way down and he deals with all of the consequences of this messed up world and all the consequences of our misdirected, misguided pursuits of pleasure by bearing them himself. And that's one of the things we see happening at the cross, that Jesus is dealing with the consequence of our sin and the world's brokenness by bearing it all himself. There's a place early in Hebrews chapter 12 where the author urges us to look to Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And then he writes this, who for the joy, and we could say for the pleasure, for the pleasure that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, do you hear what, do you hear what that's saying? That as bad as the God-forsakenness of the cross was, and it was infinitely bad, Jesus endured it trusting that on the other side of it was joy, was pleasure. And, and, and what is the pleasure? Well, it's exactly what Psalm 16 says the pleasure is. It's being at the right hand of God. It's being in the very presence of God. I mean, the author of Hebrews tells us that now that's where Jesus is, at the right hand of God, where there are pleasures forevermore. And, and so Jesus has what you and I long for. And family, he just shares his life with us. He is your life. Um, if anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, do you know what he says? Do you remember what he says? He doesn't say, if anyone is thirsty, good luck. (laughs) If anyone is thirsty, try Netflix. (laughs) If anyone is thirsty, remember that bottle of wine in your cupboard. If anyone is thirsty, have have you thought about the new house, the new car, the well-manicured lawn. If anyone is thirsty, have you tried about ditching the current relationship and trying something new? But what does Jesus say? He says, says, look, if you are thirsty, won't you just come to me and drink? He says, I have what you need. I have what you want. I'm at the right hand of the Father where there are pleasures forevermore, and I am just opening my life to you without reserve. Would you come to me, Jesus says. What are you looking for? What do you think will scratch the itch? It's a promise for you, and it's a promise for you today. I mean, I really feel like that promise from Jesus Christ is for you today. If you are thirsty, go to him. Go to him. And it's also a promise 
we wait for. I mean, we wait for the return of our king. Um, when we get to the end of the Bible story, we do see that everything Kohelet was after is there. Uh, all the pleasures are there. The trees, the pools of water, the authority, the beauty, the wealth. Uh, interestingly, maybe not the sex, but who needs that feeble sign when the reality to which it points has arrived? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, there's the reality. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Mm. For the former things have passed away. And this one, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. It's good news. It's good news, family, that that's your future in Christ. Like we will be wrapped up in him at the right hand of the Father, and there will be fullness of joy, and there will be pleasures forevermore. Thank you, Lord.